It has often been said among preachers that the most difficult sermon to preach every year is today's sermon, the sermon for Trinity Sunday. The running joke among clergy goes something like this. The rector usually delegates this sermon to his assistant. And the rector will tell you it is to test his assistant, you know, to make him prove how orthodox he really is before the parish. The assistant, of course, will tell you another story. He will tell you that the rector never preaches this sermon because he doesn't want to betray his heresies to the parish. So, Father Charles, you can't say you haven't been warned. I, of course, being the upstanding man and priest that I am, will gladly take the first bullet for the team this time. And then as I was thinking about what to say this morning about the Trinity, these other interesting thoughts came into my head, at least they were interesting to me, like two people negotiating a business deal, hoping that if they could just explain the nature of the Trinity to their client, it would help them land the big account and increase corporate profits. Or a young couple contemplating their credit card debt, thinking that if they could just understand the mystery of the Trinity a little bit better, maybe they could figure out how to pay off their bills or maybe an aging priest somewhere in southwest Fort Worth trying to lose 10 pounds before his daughter's wedding, (laughs) hoping that if he can just make a solid defense of the Trinity in his sermon, then he might lose that weight and look a little better in those pictures. Now, I'm only half joking when I say these things, because my purpose in saying them is to acknowledge that these things are of secondary importance anyway. They won't matter when we die, and we can't take them with us when we go. On the other hand, having a right understanding of God is of critical concern. I cannot overemphasize that. Because rightly knowing the right God is, in fact, how we prepare for eternity. So for starters, this day, Trinity Sunday is what we call one of the seven major feasts of the church. And that means that the great theological minds that have gone before us have decided that this day is one we should really, really pay attention to. And it is this way for at least two good reasons. First, as I just said, rightly knowing the right God is how we prepare for eternity. And secondly, rightly knowing the right God is how we advance the good news of the gospel in this world. C.S. Lewis asserts this in his classic work, Mere Christianity. He says, being a Christian does mean, it does mean that thinking where Christianity differs from other religions, that Christianity is right and all other religions are wrong. As in arithmetic, he says, there is only one right answer to a sum and all other answers are wrong. Now, let me give you a mouthful here. In our pluralistic, democratic, diverse, inclusive, modern American context, filled with pietistic platitudes, that sounds like an intolerable truth. But Lewis is not wrong. And where it concerns the salvation of souls, we, my friends, don't have time to waste words. Father Charles and I were driving to a lunch meeting earlier this week, and we were talking about all the other conversations that are going on in our world right now. COVID, the economy, the war in the Middle East, racial injustice, Republicans, Democrats, so on and so forth. 
And it's not that these things matter because they do. It's just this. It's just that there's one thing that matters, and it matters a whole lot more than all of these other things and all of everything else combined. It's eternity. Are you, am I, are we, is this world rightly prepared to enter into all of eternity. That's what's at stake. That's what's on the line when we talk about these things. We will all die. And what happens next for all of eternity? Brothers and sisters, the fact is this. People are in slavery of the worst kind in this world. Spiritual slavery Every day, people are selling their souls to the world, the flesh, and the devil, living under the lies of the false gods who rule this wicked and sinful world. And we preach this over and over again because tragically, it's still true. You know this. What we believe determines how we live. And the lies that we allow into our lives have real and terrible consequences, and not only in and for this life, but if unremitted, for all of eternity. And thank God he has given us the remedy. Jesus says to us, you shall know the truth. You shall know the truth And the truth shall set you free. Jesus also says this to us. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Therefore, my friends, it starts with us, actually. We Christians must rid ourselves of the damaging spiritual delusion that all religions are just different paths leading to the top of the same mountain. They are not The people of this world deserve better, and God demands better. Jesus Christ did not give his life unto death for Christians to act with indifference or apathy or cowardice in the time of conflict. In fact, it's the opposite. The Bible says that God has given us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. C.S. Lewis also says this in Mere Christianity. He says, Christianity is a fighting religion. It actually dares to think that God made the world, that he created space and time, heat and cold, colors and taste, animals and vegetable. These things, Lewis says, and everything else are things that God himself made up in his own head. Just like we make stories up in our head. Lewis continues Christianity also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong in this world that God made and that God insists, and he insists very loudly on making them right again. So fellow Christians, let's live out loud for God for just a few minutes. I'm going to say a whole bunch of things here, and if you have follow-up questions on them, please come and see me. Please come and talk to me because I can't get to everything that I want to say. There are too many arguments and too many nuances of arguments. I'm just going to give you the basic facts as they stand. So for starters, we can reject atheism and polytheism from the start. 
After all, atheism, as we know, leaves us in nothing but an eternal void of meaninglessness. Atheism is an internal void of meaninglessness. Likewise, polytheism, a belief in many gods, is both intellectually insufficient and ultimately it is spiritually unsatisfying. But with those things said, I suspect that the place where we have the most trouble anyway is actually monotheism. Specifically, what do we say about other monotheistic religions like Judaism and Islam? And what do we say to others who say they believe there is only one God as we do? If you've never heard this argument put this way before, in short, we only have to say about these religions what they would say for themselves. Specifically, and to get at the heart of the matter, these religions boldly declare that Jesus is not God. Period. After all, remember that the Jews put Jesus to death for blasphemy. They put him to death for claiming that he himself is God. And then Islam arriving on the scene some 600 years after Jesus, Islam also rejects the belief that Jesus is God. Yet what does Jesus say of himself? John 10.30, he plainly says, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, Jesus declares, anyone who sees me has seen the Father. John 14.6, I am the way. The way. He doesn't say a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, Lewis, he sums this up nicely when he says this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And my point, my friends, about other religions, any other religion, is simply this. If others can be so bold as to consistently and persistently say what is untrue, that Jesus is not Lord, how much more bold should we Christians be in saying what is true? The truth that sets us free. I love what Father Charles said in his Pentecost sermon last Sunday. Remember how he talked about the 2.0 version of Peter. You remember that? The one who preached at Pentecost. The one who went from cowering in fear to courageously preaching the gospel, proclaiming it before the very people who crucified Christ. Why? Because he got it. 
because he entered into a right relationship with God, the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if these are the things we can say about other religions and worldviews and comparing them to Christianity, what then might we say to people of other religions? In fact, to anyone and everyone who is struggling with these things, even as we struggle with these things. First, do we fully understand the Trinity ourselves? We do not. We do not fully understand the Trinity. We do not fully know how one God can be in three persons Why do you think we pass this sermon off back and forth between the two of us? We don't fully understand it. In short, there is yet a mystery that has not yet been made known to us about God. But this mystery simply means that there is more to God than our finite minds can understand. And that is wonderful to think about. After all, there are many things we do not fully understand in this life. I don't understand how or why certain thoughts enter into my brain. I can't account for that. I don't understand how a sperm and an egg become a human being. Even so, these mysteries contain a certain knowability, and that's the second part. We may not understand fully the mystery of how a sperm and an egg become a human being, but we know that they do, and therefore we value this precious gift. In the same way, though God is mystery, yet he has made himself knowable and known to us, manifesting himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not one person, then another, then another, but all three for all of eternity. And so here is the last and most important point. The mystery and knowability of our triune God has not come to us by human reason, It's come to us by divine self-revelation. People throughout all of human history have reasoned that there is no God. They have reasoned that there are many gods. They have reasoned that there might be one God. But hear this carefully. No one anywhere ever came up with the thought that God is one in three persons. That is until God revealed this to us. So I'll work to the end with this example. There are a lot of things that you can know about me by observation and by reason. By observation and reason, you can see that I am a man, I'm male. You can see that I'm a priest. You observe and reason that I'm married by what you see. You can even tell pretty easily that my hair is turning gray and it's turning loose. You know about me by reason, but you can only know me, the kind of man that I am, the kind of priest that I am, the kind of husband that I am, by revelation. You can only know what I think and what I believe when I reveal it to you. You can only know what character I have when I show it to you. And so it is with God. By reason, we observe things and know about God, his divine power and his attributes. We just sang about them in that beautiful song, immortal, invisible, God-only wise. 
But in the end, we need this. We must have his divine self-revelation. Why? Because it, it perfects our finite and sometimes flawed human reasoning. It is God's divine self-revelation that shows us, after all, that he is a God of love, of justice, of righteousness, of mercy, and of grace. His divine self-revelation is what shows us that he doesn't stand far off from us in our time of need, that he doesn't act arbitrarily as the polytheists believe in antiquity in matters of justice and righteousness, that he doesn't leave us wondering if our eternity depends on how good we are or how many laws we obey or whether we've done more good than bad or right than wrong, who can know? Indeed, it is God's divine self-revelation that meets us finally in our deepest place of need. And in our deepest places of need, we need to know that there is a God who made us, who provides for us, and who protects us. And so we have an almighty, infinite Father who is that for us and who does that for us. And when we fall sin, fall short of his glory by sin, we need to know that there is a God who loves us, who forgives us, and who redeems us. And so we have a wonderful, merciful Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. And as we proclaim the gospel in this challenging and changing world, we need to know that there is a God who is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, who even adopts us into his own family. And so we have a counselor, a comforter, and a healer in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And so, my friends, for these reasons, on this day and every day, we celebrate the one God, the true God, and the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and always. Amen.